Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to the July 23rd, 2020 QPSC. As a reminder to all, in light of COVID-19 and in accordance with our government health and safety guidelines calling for social distancing, uh, this meeting is again being conducted uh, in virtual format. There is no public space uh, for, the, for this meeting. Um, uh, I'm going to have a roll call and a reminder to all on this meeting uh, that our convention is to move directly into closed session after roll call. Uh, closed session to remind everybody is 1157 protected and is used to discuss confidential matters related to the medical staff, accreditation, and risk management. So if you're not directly related to one of these discussions, we kindly ask you to rejoin us. Hopefully we will be doing closed session very quickly today. We have a jam-packed agenda. I do note that there are public speakers. There are six who've submitted. Thank you for that. They will be uh, attributed to item E on the agenda. So uh, public speakers, you have been acknowledged. You will, but you will have your space. We want to put you in the appropriate space, which will be re relevant to item E. So with that, we'll go into roll call, please. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. We do have a quorum. Oh, thank you. So everyone, uh, we'll be moving into closed session now. Yeah, and just for purpose of the record, the uh, committee will now meet in closed session for the items as listed in the agenda. Welcome, everybody. We're back into open session. We are here at the July 23rd, 2020 QPSC. Um, we have a very busy agenda today, so I'm going to potentially apologize in advance to some of the presenters. We actually have some action items which we need to do. So as, as we come to a towards the close, there's the possibility that some of the presentations might be very attenuated. Uh, so I ask everyone to uh, think about the presentations and their opportunities to cut down maybe 10 or 15% just because we're very oversubscribed. We have six public comments today. I want to give them the space um, and, and the relevance. Uh, so they will be placed around item E, which is a discussion of the uh, uh, intensive uh, outpatient program. There's an update and we'll, we'll make some comments around that. We'll, we'll keep tight on the clock at two minutes and I'll of course keep them, but we're gonna be giving them uh, that space. Um, as for the rest of the reports, that uh, you should always presume that your trustees have read the report. We're just a little bit tight today. Everyone watch their clock uh, and uh, away we go. Uh, we'll start out with uh, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda uh, items B1, B2, and B3? So moved. Second. Um, I'll open it up for dialogue. Uh, we had the minutes from June 25th. We had uh, 21 AHS, AHS system policies, four from Highland, one from Alameda, and one from standard, uh, standardized. And we had specialty privileges forms from pathology and from the surgical departments. Any items or questions for discussion? That was a lot of reading. No. Trustee Hernandez, nothing? Got it. Oh, good. W with that, all in favor of approving uh, consent agenda B1, 2, and 3? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? All right. Wonderful. So we bought ourselves a little bit of time there. All right. I item C, uh, this is our, our reading club. This is QPSC chair. Um, uh, uh, again, I'm a reminder, this includes myself, that we are tight on time today. I'm, I'm going to continue to ask all presenters to shave a little bit of their time, and that includes me. Um, uh, two articles here. The first article was 96% uh, of customers will leave you for bad service, for bad customer service. I, I got to tell you, uh, 
I've recently been on both sides of customer service. Uh, I, I've recently had some bad customer service. And, and I also uh, had a patient's family that was very unhappy in general with us as a hospital, but actually as related to our service as well. And neither of those felt very well. So I hope you guys will read that article. We probably don't have a lot of time to, to dialogue on it, but I think it's such an important one. And, and when I ran across this article, it just sort of stuck and it made sense. And it, it, gave, it, it prompted me to have an existential question for all of us. Do we provide good customer service here? And, and uh, there were two final quotes on that article. One, don't give your customers a reason to switch. And two, just be nice. And I, I think those are, these, are, these are great math, maxims, something that we should take on. And when I talk about customers, I mean our patients, I mean our employees, I mean ourselves. All of us have opportunities to provide better customer service. And that, that, that statistic, 96% of people are willing to leave for bad customer service. It just makes sense. Um, trustees, any comments on that article? Um, it just made me reflect on that article, which I think I've shared before or talked about before, which was an HBR uh, classic, and it was staple yourself to a customer order. Um, I would love in the days after the pandemic that um, our committee as a group pretend to walk through what it's like to try and navigate um, Highland, let's say, um, let's say we walk in and say, if we were here because we weren't feeling well and we started to need um, some assistance, not an accident, but just, you know, feeling uh, any number of things, what would that look like? What does it take before we're actually seen by a physician? Um, how do we navigate to the right uh, place to get our blood drawn uh, if we had to do that? Um, I, I think um, being part of the um, FETI committee, one of the things that we talked about is just patient navigation. How do people orient themselves? And if you don't speak English, if you don't understand, you know, how the system is set up, how would you do that? That's, I think, something that we need to do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I, was, I was struck. <laughs> I love the... The ending, be nice. Yeah, uh, I, I think, uh, and and I just re was reflecting on my own work in the nonprofit sector about how hard that is to create a culture of being nice. Um, and I wonder, um, I do wonder, um, again because of my experience in my job, I wonder about the fact that we we're serving disproportionately. Um, we're serving people who are on the outskirts of income, um, outskirts of racial equality. I just wonder if, um, you know, if this system, if the if those people are receiving a welcome, uh, if there's the sense that they're customers. I just wonder what all that means. So, uh, sort of, uh, I'm sort of coming at this from the vantage point that uh, Trustee Hernandez sort of, I, I'd like to sort of know much more um, about what that experience is for folks. I really do think we need to consider uh, developing a lived experience um, advisory board 
within um, our hospitals in particular to gain feedback and gain perspective. Um, you know, the disparities are just, you know, healthcare pay, for example, is to me, everyone in this system makes a, <laughs> most people in the system make a lot of money. And a lot of people coming here for services don't make much money at all. And the disparities are just so wide. Um, I just wonder if, if uh, how that's showing up uh, in bias and so forth. Mm. I, I, great, great comments as well. You know, I once read a provocative article that, that said the immediate fix to all healthcare systems mandate that all their employees from executive team to docs to employees all get their care within the system. Mm. Uh, obviously, we can't do that, uh, but, but, but it, it is a provocative element, right? If we all got care in our system, how would, would we behave differently? I, don't know. I, I think it's an issue. Uh, we need to we need to mitigate for that because my my wife is uh, I think I've mentioned before works for Kaiser, yeah. and um, I'm uh, we, we we've been Kaiser patients for years, and that changes the whole perspective uh, that she has of her job mm-hmm. because she's getting care within that system. Yeah, um, we we need to mitigate for that. Yeah. We can start with the trustees. <laughs> um, so with, with, with that, um, I will go to the second article um, from the Harvard Business Review, 10 Questions to Guide the Boards Through the Pandemic. I thought this was a, a, a very nice article. I'm just going to read the questions, and then, we, then we're going to move. I think they're, uh, it, it was actually, as, as, as HBR always does, it, they, they, they put out a provocative uh, article, which, which, which makes me wonder. I think this should probably be required reading for our, our, our full board. This should be, we should have a full board reading club. So question number one, what can you do to ensure the health and safety of your workforce? Question two, what is your CEO succession plan? Three, what is your company's ability to cover near-term expenses? Four, what trade-offs do we have to make around payroll expenses? Five, do we need to adjust our supply chains? Six, are we prepared to work remotely for an extended period of time? Next, how do we keep our company culture alive? Next, how are we interacting with our financial markets? Next, how strong is our underlying business model? Questions we always have. And last, are we behaving as a socially responsible organization? I, I actually think this is, is, uh, is a great retreat stuff, not this retreat because the agenda is already set. So we have... Um, uh, at least one member of our executive uh, uh, team here, uh, our board executive team. I think it's a, it's, it's a great construct. Uh, the big questions often help us kind of guide us to where, where we're going. So uh, I'm going to just leave it there. The, the, I, I think it's a great article. It's available for all to read. It's in the public packet. And, and, and I ask that, that my other trustees help um, guide us in our larger board discussions because I think these are great questions. And I'm uh, I'm not sure we have answers to all of them, but 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 first thinking about them, I think are, are great points. Great. So with that, I will close out item C, and we will go into item D, the medical staff reports. I want to remind everybody that about two months ago we began migrating the key elements of the chief of staff report to the full board. So I actually wanted to reserve this time for any discussions that the chief of staff might want to have before they move into the full board. So. 
if they they have a full board report. Uh, but I'm, I'm I'm just giving them this stop point if there's something here that they want to test out in the QPSC or they feel that needs to navigate here. So, um, uh, Dr. Marzouk is here and Dr. Ballard. Dr. Ballard, I, I see you're off mic right now. So, uh, Dr. Ballard, any comments for this section within QPSC? No, Dr. Bouquet, you can save the time and move on to Dr. Marzouk. Thank you, Dr. Ballard. Dr. Marzouk. Dr. Marzouk, you're on mute. Dr. Ingenio, any comments that you would like to make uh, that, that, that would not be considered for part of, part of the full Board of Trustee meeting? Going once, going twice. Dr. Marzouk, Dr. Ingenio. Um, you may need to unmute them. They, if they're on the phone, it can be difficult to unmute yourself. Uh, who's the host? Is it Mike? Yes. So, no, they're not. They've muted themselves. So there's nothing I can do about that. Got it. Ah. Auto mute. Okay. So, Mike. Okay. Well, they have a full, they have a full opportunity at the full board of meeting at the full board meeting. So with that, I'm going to close item D and wow, we gained ourselves some time. Okay. Which is what we need. You're doing well. <laughs> item E. Item E is a, a, a discussion which we've been having for a while, but a very important one. It is on the intensive outpatient program. This is an update. We've been asking Dr. Barbaria and, and of course, uh, Del Vecchio to, to, to report back to us as kind of steering for what I ultimately think needs to migrate to the full board because of the scale and scope and, and, and strategic implications of this discussion. So uh, I previously uh, uh, given 10 minutes allocation this time, that's not enough. Uh, 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 we now have uh, submitted six, um, six public speakers. I'm gonna name who they are just so you guys can prepare and I'm just gonna go down the listen order. We're gonna be hearing from Jonathan Ramston, Chelsea DeMarte, Karen Marcus, Lucy Colvin, Jordan Pellot, and Diana Lawton in that order. And, and um, apologies to you guys, folk, to you folks. Um, we, are, we are going to be very tight on the time limitations. So we're, we're going to do it at two minutes each. There's six of you, that's 12 minutes. And hopefully that can inform um, this, this, this committee. I wanna make one further comment um, uh, about that. Uh, 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 the board is in receipt of a document related to this discussion, and I want to acknowledge that that document has been received and now been distributed to the board. And, 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 and to further feed this dialogue, I just want to say that it is a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a well-drafted uh, five-page document. The details are probably beyond the scope of what I know with regard to this argument with this but i i do want to read a couple of sentences from the introduction paragraph as full acknowledgement to all our people who are here talking about the iop uh, and, and and i'll quote it as follows in response to leadership's proposal we are in general support of option number three and we are thankful that we can continue the iop that said we have significant concerns about the aspects of option three as well as some suggestions about how to make option three the best possible version of itself and then it goes on. 
so to all those who are interested parties, the board is in receipt of this document. And, and, and uh, with that, we will go. So um, uh, number one is Jonathan Ramsden. Jonathan, are you here? Yes, can you hear me? Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Jonathan, so thank you, everyone. Jonathan, we're gonna we're gonna go with two minutes. Is that okay? That's fine. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, uh, apologies in advance. Sorry, I get to be a stickler on 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 some of the stuff. I will just I'm not interrupting you. I'll just say the words thirty seconds at thirty seconds. Is that fair? That sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. All right, go for it. Hi, everyone. My name is Jonathan Ramsden, and as one of the managers at the Fairmont uh, PHP IOP program, I want to express our general support for the framework of option number three of leadership's proposal on the future state of behavioral health services at AHS uh, with some key modifications. We are really grateful to, be, to have been engaged in this process by leadership and very happy that option three includes a future for the IOP and PHP program. Um, as Dr. Bequette mentioned earlier today, our clinical staff submitted to key stakeholders here the five-page document in response to leadership's proposal. Um, I have to say uh, it's pretty thoughtful, um, and I respectfully request that those who have received it uh, take the time to read it. Today, my colleagues wish to touch on just some key points of our response um, with some important amendments to option three, but again, kindly read the written draft as submitted. It will help clarify some really important considerations as we move forward together on this. Most importantly, I want to publicly acknowledge the incredible dedication and commitment of every single member of our clinical, administrative, and transportation staff and outpatient behavioral health services. Their steadfast focus on patient care amidst both this public health crisis um, and this process of redefining our behavioral health service lines has been nothing short of inspirational. Everyone in this meeting should feel incredibly grateful to have a staff of this caliber amongst their ranks. Um, I now see the remainder of my time to our next speaker. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for that. Um, so um, um, thank you very much for that, for, that, for that thoughtful dialogue. Number two is Chelsea DeMarte. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Chelsea? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, Chelsea, did I say your last name properly? Yes, DeMarty, yes. DeMarty. Chelsea, are, are you, uh, we're, we're going to follow two minutes. I Not to interrupt you, I will say 30 seconds uh, just briefly when we're at 30. Is that okay? That sounds great. The floor is yours. Okay, so option number three that we are, that we like, suggests that the IOP should start billing pro fees in order to make the IOP budget neutral and that all MFTs should be reassigned to the wellness center or outpatient clinic because they are not able to bill Medicare for pro fees. So this idea presents both a misconception about the value of MFTs and also a misinterpretation of how to leverage billing for pro fees. So over the past 20 years in our program, the IOP has never billed for pro fees up until now and has also been a profitable program. The clinical expertise of MFTs is crucially needed to run the IOP. And all along, MFTs have been providing services which are successfully billed. Therefore, the idea that MFTs can't bill Medicare through IOP is not true. It was IOP staff that first identified billing pro fees as only one of many additional forms of billing which could increase our revenue knowing that our tenured MFTs could not bill for this particular extra revenue. This is because our IOP already has 
seven other eligible profi providers who can in fact bill for profis and thus produce substantial revenue. This, along with numerous other methods available to us to increase revenue, can easily help us to attain, attain budget neutrality. So in conclusion, the IOP is happy to start billing for profis, but our tenured MF, MFTs should not be targeted for reassignment based solely on ability to bill for profis. This would be an unnecessary move and also does not align with best practice. Best practice would indicate that potential reassignment be informed by patient needs and the clinical expertise available to meet those needs. Our tenured MFTs are licensed psychotherapists and seasoned experts in our IOP program who serve essential and integral roles. And the last piece of news is very good news. Um, Medicare is actually on the verge of approving MFTs as eligible pro-fee providers in the near future. Thank you very much. And I give my time to the next speaker. Thank you, Chelsea. Um, um, next uh, is Karen Marcus. Karen, are you on the line? I feel like a night, night talk radio. Karen? Karen? I'll, I'll, I'll put Karen on the hold list. I'll move down the list. Lucy Colvin. Hello, Lucy. I saw you. Ah, there's Lucy. Lucy, will you unmute yourself? Can we, un can we unmute? Ah, there. Lucy, hi. Yes, can you hear me now? Do one more audio check right there for us. Okay, can you hear me? We can. Lucy, oh, we're, we're going to keep you two minutes on the clock. I'll, okay. say, I'll say 30 at 30, okay? Thank you. The proposal option submitted to us by leadership, they exclude our transportation team. Leadership asserts that individual client insurance payments of self-coordinated transportation should be used instead of our in-house transportation team. Our experience is that people with seriously mentally ill symptoms have a high no-show rate when self-transporting. The symptoms of illness such as thought disorder, fragmentation, paranoia, isolation, low motivation, all work against them to self-coordinate their transport. Most of them don't drive and uh, have a hard time taking the bus. In fact, those who take lifts regularly tell us that they don't want to get in because they're paranoid. They're, they distrust them. They're different each time, have no consistency or training or interface with mental health systems, especially our many clients with trauma systems. Our transportation team is part of the intensive outpatient model to hold the acuity of symptoms a person coming out of the hospital has to enable continuity of care. Dr. Siddhartha has suggested we use our transportation team as a selling point for patients coming out of John George who are overwhelmed to be able to enable them to come to our program to be able to have more thorough ongoing recovery. Our transportation team are trained and able to interface well with these difficult mental health systems. They provide a continuity of care, which enables higher client retention attendance. The amount of money spent on the salaries of the transportation team dwarfs, and I say dwarfs the amount of revenue 
and therapeutic benefits they add to the IOP program. Also, the wellness center would be significantly more successful and robust with the ability to access our transportation team for similar reasons. With our expertise in providing the services for over 20 years, we request that transportation be kept as a significant pillar to our program. It is a standardized part of the IOP and it is integral to how we work. They are amazing part of our program. The clients respect them. We have a higher show rate because we have them, uh, they are assessing them when they pick them up, which is a big part of it. Um, so treatment starts at the doorstep with our drivers. Thank you, and I really appreciate your thinking about that piece. Thank, thank you. you very, thank you very much. <laughs> um, next is Jordan. Hi, Jordan. Uh, you're right in the middle of my screen. Cool. So Jordan Pellop is next. Jordan, two minutes on the clock. I will say 30 seconds at the 30-second mark. Is that acceptable? Jordan, you're on mute. There we go. Can you hear me? Jordan, Jordan give us an audio check, please. Can you hear me? Uh, get closer to the mic, if you don't mind, just a little bit. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit better. All right, uh, two, two minutes on the clock. I'll give you the 30-second, okay? All right, sounds good. Uh, the floor is yours. All right, thanks. My name is Jordan. I'm also a staff at uh, Fairmont IOP. Um, again, I want to really uh, greatly appreciate the opportunity that uh, uh, we began in, with Option 3 to, to serve those with mental health needs across uh, the range of severity uh, and regardless of insurance type. Um, the staff uh, at IOP, we looked at our current staffing and we believe that it is uh, within our ability to, to restructure IOP uh, in order to provide for a wellness center uh, for also serving those with moderate to severe mental illness uh, within our current staffing budget. Uh, having run a pilot program for the outpatient services uh, for the last three years. We do have a number of concerns uh, laid out in our response um, that we provided to you that we, we think are really important for you to consider. Uh, you know, we're predominantly concerned with the viability of staffing and outpatient services to meet the needs of thousands of individuals uh, with mild to moderate severity currently in need of services. Uh, and we're urging uh, to consider uh, finding some additional budgeting and staffing uh, along with addressing the, the concerns that we've uh, listed uh, if we're able, to, if we're really fully committing to having an outpatient uh, services clinic for those with mild to moderate need. Um, thank you very much and I see the, the rest of my time. So wow, thank you. Jordan, thank you very much for your words. Um, uh, last on the list was Diana Lawton, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that Diana is logged in. I want to just put it out there. I see Karen and Marcus is logged in. So Diana Lawton, are you here? Diana Lawton? Last time, Diana Lawton. Uh, Karen Marcus, I, I see uh, the big K. Hi, Karen. Can you unmute, Karen? Hi, can you hear me? Karen, give us another audio check here. Hi, uh, can you hear me now? We can. Karen, two minutes on the clock at 30 seconds. I will say 30, okay? Sure. The floor is yours, Karen. Thank you. I'm Karen Marcus, MD psychiatrist at the Fairmont CHC IOP, where I've been for a number of years. 
And um, I'm very excited together with the rest of our very strong, committed core of therapists to expand the depth and the breadth of our program so we can serve more people in our community. Um, I want to express our concerns about length of stay in the program. This is uh, essentially a medical matter, and I think it should be treated as such. Many patients who come to PHP IOP from PES or an inpatient stay, they need only a short period for us to ensure that they're sufficiently stable to then step down further to an outpatient clinic setting or to the wellness center or both. Some patients, however, need more time for us to ensure that they're stable. They may need further medication changes, for example, or other therapeutic interventions that require a longer time course before we can safely and responsibly step them down to an even lower level of care. Either way, I just I want to say that I, I believe the decisions about length of stay should be based on each patient's clinical need rather than on a one-size-fits-all blanket policy. Not, that's my main point. I also just want to you know, reiterate that our, our very committed therapist staff has worked hard to address this and other issues in our written response to the leadership's proposal. It's only a few pages long. It's the result of many hours of thoughtful and collaborative work. We all move together, move forward together, and I, I encourage you to read it. Thank you very much. Karen, thank you for your words. Um, uh, the last was this. I'm going to wrap back around. Diana Lawton. Diana, have you logged in? Going once, going twice, going three. So I want to say appreciation for that public comment. Uh, while we don't, uh, while our, our guidelines, so we do not respond directly to public comment, I'll say broadly that we have received uh, this proposal. It looks to be thoughtful and and and, and well written. Uh, details are details, and I'll defer that to our, our staff. And uh, I want to appreciate give appreciation to the engagement um, from from all parties here, uh, especially those who work within the IOP and who have held it near and dear to their heart for so so long. So with that, let's actually open up to uh, uh, to kind of presentation because I I'm sure I sit with many of the other trustees in saying one question, what is option three? <laughs> and uh, I, I think it probably starts uh, with that for, for us. So I'm going to now cede the floor uh, to Dr. Barbaria. Um, Paula, if you don't mind guiding us through, uh, briefly if you will, because I, I think there's a lot of context uh, for here that you're gonna have to walk us through. And then we'll, maybe we'll open up for questions. I wanna remind everybody, there's no actionable item on this. This, this is for discussion. There's no action uh, uh, being derived from the, from, from the QPSC on this, on this item. Uh, Paula, the floor is yours. Dr. Barbaria, the floor is yours. Are you on mute? Dr. Barbaria? Great, thank you, Mike, for unmuting me. Um, so I'm just going to go through, we only have three slides that are four slides, I think will cover the three options that were being referenced. I may call on people more knowledgeable than myself, such as doctors Siddhartha and Weiss, um, as we go through the process. Can folks see my screen? Yep, we're good. Great. Um, so to just provide a little bit of framework, and just so everyone's aware, uh, 
myself, Dr. Siddhartha, Dr. Weiss, and Del Vecchio reviewed these slides with the staff last week. Um, so obviously some of the public comments were referencing both the slides and some of the discussion that we had last week. So these are the same slides that were shared with them. Um, so in terms of guiding principles for all three of these choices, I think this is really based off of feedback from uh, multiple trustees in this meeting and in other venues, um, our executive team, and then obviously, you know, what the overarching pressures and goals of our organization are at this point in time. So, you know, first and foremost, there is a desire, as I've presented in previous QPSC sessions, to improve and ensure access for the full spectrum of patients with behavioral health needs. So we mean not just the SMI population, but also the mild to moderate population, irrespective of payer. Um, and we've reviewed in detail some of those gaps before. And then, especially given the current fiscal constraints that we know will only likely get worse, to achieve financial sustainability um, and a budget-neutral approach to all of these programs. So I'll go through at a high level, and then if any of the trustees have questions, I'm happy to go into more details. So I think, you know, option one is really maintain the IOP, but with readjustments. So we've gotten extensive feedback um, from Trustee Peterson. I want to acknowledge the amount of time that he has taken to review this and um, contribute some of his knowledge and expertise to the feedback, as well as feedback from key stakeholders such as Alameda County Behavioral Healthcare Services um, and looking at IOP models in other counties um, and areas throughout the state, such that it's clear that our current IOP faces a number of challenges, the budget shortfall being one, um, but also access challenges um, such that their right now- Their system is the problem and I can't, you can't fix that. And their CEO and their- I ask, I ask everyone to mute if you're not presenting. Um, you know, so there's access issues as well. Currently, and Dr. Siddhartha can expound on this, I believe the IOP is only taking about one patient from John George Psychiatric Hospital per month, um, even though we have many more patients who are obviously medi-medi. So in terms of providing an access point to patients being discharged, from John George, there are some challenges here. Um, so we've gotten feedback from a broad array of stakeholders that you know, to really make IOP um, but not just financially viable, but to really address some of our access challenges and caring for this incredibly complicated, vulnerable patient population, there would need to be significant changes that occur. Uh, most IOP programs you know, have a shorter duration of enrollment. They take care of a different acuity of patients, have different enrollment criteria such that more patients leaving the acute hospital side are eligible. Um, many of them provide different types of non-clinical services. So, you know, transportation has been mentioned before. Most of our patients who have Medi-Cal and most of the patients here are Medi-Medi do have a transportation benefit that is covered through their managed Medi-Cal plan that obviously, you know, didn't exist many, many years ago, but has certainly existed for the last few years. So there are some areas where we duplicate services that are already paid for and offered by another entity. Um, and then the professional fee billing is also been mentioned. So it is true, you know, my understanding is we have not previously collected profies. I'm not sure why Trustee Peterson pointed out that most IOP programs that he is aware of do collect profies and also specifically hire provider types that are eligible for collecting profies from Medicare, which not all of our behavioral health provider types are. 
Um, so this is option one. It's sort of keeping the IOP, but restructuring it to bring it closer aligned with what the standard IOP model is at most places like Kaiser. Um, the biggest gap here, obviously, is that this does not address our larger access needs for non-Medicare patients. So it does not necessarily expand any access for a mild to moderate population. And then even for the SMI population, patients still have to have Medicare. Um, so for the 70% of our patients, you know, both in the wellness centers for primary care, as well as those seen at John George, um, who have either just Medi-Cal or HPAC, they continue to not have any access points with option number one. Trustees, I ask that we let Dr. Barbaria complete her presentation and then we go to Q&A. Acceptable? Yep. Dr. Barbara, keep going, please. So option number two is sort of the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So in this one, you know, the IOP would not continue to exist and we would move entirely to a wellness center model. Um, Del Vecchio can expound, but we've had very promising conversations with the county and, and they're very supportive of this model. So at wellness center, the way we've defined it here would be open access to anyone who has any behavioral health needs. So this includes not just SMI patients, um, but also mild to moderate patients. So it would improve access all patients would be able to come irrespective of payer. So if Medicare patients arrive, we would charge Medicare just as we do today. If patients who have SMI um, arrive with Medi-Cal, because we would have a county contract, we could be reimbursed for those services through county behavioral health care services. If patients arrive who have Medi-Cal, um, who have mild to moderate disease, that is obviously a carve out of the managed Medi-Cal plans. And so we would invoice um, Beacon and our existing contracts through managed Medi-Cal. So we would have a reimbursement mechanism for every single payer and for the full spectrum of um, behavioral health needs. It would address financial losses in the current model. Um, obviously, in this model, since the IOP would not be continuing, we recognize there may be you know, patients for who could transition into this wellness center model, but there may be other patients who have a higher level of need um, and would need additional services beyond just the wellness center and handoffs and clinical transitions would need to be done in close collaboration with Alameda County Behavioral Healthcare Services. And the county has committed um, to working through that transition plan if we go down this route in a thoughtful, um, collaborative way, taking as much time as we need to have safe transitions for patients. Um, so option number three is sort of you take those two options and you put them together. So it combines options number one and number two. Um, you know, this obviously gets you the benefits of what both of those um, programs are. Uh, one of the limitations is obviously it, it is a two-tiered system since I, for IOP, Medi-Cal patients would still not be eligible. So we would still continue to have a program um, that is only allowed to serve a certain population and that is the Medicare population and would not be open to other types of patients. Given the fiscal limitations that we are all encountering, um, both in terms of labor and non-labor expenses, this option would need to be done with our existing staff and space constraints um, without additional capital available for sort of new facilities, new buildings, or new staff. Um, and there have been challenges. I think some of the staff comments alluded to that, that there have been attempts to do IOP plus the outpatient therapy for the last few years that predated my time overseeing these programs. And there have been challenges, you know, using staff for multiple functions and sharing space. So. That, that challenge would remain in this model as well. 
So that's the last slide. I know I, I breezed through them, so I welcome questions. Um, and I guess maybe before we turn it over to the trustees, Drs. Weiss or um, Siddhartha, as our behavioral health experts, is there anything that I misstated or left out that you would like to add or edit? Uh, nothing for me to add here. Thank you, Pala. Thank you, Dr. Siddhartha. Dr. Wise, hi, how are you? Hi, good, thanks. Um, I don't have anything to, else to add. I think that was um, a, a really good synopsis of um, kind of what we're looking at um, and uh, certainly appreciate um, the additional thoughts that um, staff shared with us today. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of open this up to trustees for questions with, with one caveat here. Remember, this, this is a high priority tracking item for us. Um, this, uh, again, I will continue to keep this on the agenda. This will be agendized again in, in August because we can't do this in 10 minutes. We can't do this in 20 minutes. So I want to give us time to receive this, receive the input from, from uh, the stakeholders there, uh, ask a few questions, and then and give it time to stew and brew. And then we'll talk about it this again uh, in, in August. There is no actionable item here. This is sort of FYI stuff. So with that, uh, Trustee Shaquin or Hernandez. Uh, yeah, I have... go ahead. I, I just want a real uh, simple question. Can someone share again the total number of patients that are seen through this program? Which program, Trustee Hernandez? The, IO, the, the existing IOP? Existing IOP. Karen, do you want to take that for both Highland and Fairmont? Yes, let me try to pull it out of my memory the best I can. So I think that Highland um, currently has about 60 IOP patients enrolled. Um, and I think Fairmont is about 110. Thank you. I, I, I want to clarify, so I always repeat because I, I want to make sure I'm not slow about this. I, I've heard in multiple presentations, but I just want it out and open clear. The current IOP model does not serve 70% of our patients. True or false or clarity? Dr. Barbaria? Yeah, so I would say 70% 70, 70 of our patients are not eligible for the IOP. Okay. So, and that's, you know, the exact insurance mix varies a little bit between our primary care wellness centers where we have all of our primary care patients that are assigned from the health plans and John George, but roughly 30% of the patients at John George um, have Medicare and roughly 70% are a mix of Medi-Cal and HPAC and some commercial insurance. Got In the it. wellness centers for our primary care assigned lives, the Medicare percentage is even lower than what it is at John George. So even fewer patients are eligible than what's currently being served at John George. Um, and so most of for our primary care assigned lives, they're almost all managed Medi-Cal or um, HPAC, but they, I think the Medicare percentage is closer to about 10 to 15% compared to the 30% at John George. So off the bat, 70% are just not eligible. And then as Dr. Siddharth has mentioned before, even of the 30% who are eligible, a very small number are being enrolled in the program. So the actual percentage of patients served, you know, is obviously smaller than that because not everyone enrolls who is eligible. And in follow-up to that, again, uh, you know, sometimes I'm simple about this, I apologize. Options number two, the core of option two, which actually is inclusive of option three, that would expand to 100% of our patients. Is that true? Would be eligible, correct. Okay, so we're going from 70% uh, 
uh, ineligible, sorry, 30% of our patients to 100% of our patients if the wellness center model is included in this. Am I, am I correct, correct on that one? Yes, okay. correct. Okay. And what's the, uh, the new volume expected to be? Karen, do you wanna take that one? Yes, um, so that is my next task. I'm working on a projection for volume and also for cost for these models. Um, and I'm working with our finance partners and hopefully have that for, for you all soon. Okay, thank you. Uh, and, and we all know that we have a serious challenge within our system around throughput. What impact, well, let me ask this, under the current system, uh, what percentage of the current clients are considered homeless or severely at risk of being homeless? For the clients currently enrolled in IOP? Correct, of the current program. Um, I, I actually don't have that data. I'm not sure. Is, is that something you might be able to get us? I, 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 think, uh, I think we need to be very interested in costs out outside of the costs of the literal program and within our system there's this, this problem of throughput people in beds who um, experience administrative days and that costs quite a bit of money so if you look into that and and then actually the the, the corollary to that question is uh, would the uh, selection process and the uh, service provision change for uh, potentially for homeless, at risk of homeless and other high risk of uh, at, at uh, being stuck in throughput uh, populations. Yeah, get... I think um, when we're we're talking about um, changing the current IOP program, that's one of the things that has come up is loosening the uh, the screening around who's admitted to the program and really um, opening it up to more of the patients that are. Um, you know, have more challenges in treatment um, and are also the ones that are therefore harder to discharge from John George. Um, so accepting patients quicker and accepting patients who, um, you know, may or may not be successful in the program, but we'll give it a try because we, we need to, um, you know, continue their care and they, they do need to leave the hospital. Yeah, I worry when I hear that programs have screens and I'd, I'd like to know more about what the current screen is. Not Obviously, putting you on the spot, but yeah. in the future, I'd also like uh, some thought to be given to uh, disproportionate care and racial equity. In terms of this program, I'd like to see what we have been doing, who's it lining up with, who who it might be leaving out. Um, and, and one other piece of information along those lines, uh, Trustee Sherwin, is um, what percent of the patients are homeless? Is it all homeless patients? So that's, I think that's um, kind of the, uh, one of the aspects of the question uh, Trustee Hewlin's trying to get to. Let me just, if I may, I, I'll, I'll share some of the, my, my, my recent learnings here, uh, uh, which, is, which is more subjective than, than um, uh, or qualitative than quantitative. Um, um, part of the discussion that I participated in with the staff last Friday uh, was in, involved a, um, a consideration of uh, knowledge that I uh, had uh, gleaned that one of the uh, criteria that is um, uh, resulting in screening out a lot of uh, homeless or marginally housed uh, patients is, or I should say, 
uh, screening certain patients out is uh, whether they are homeless or marginally housed. And uh, obviously that, that presents quite a, a concern and a, uh, a uh, incongruent uh, construct for me with respect to uh, our values in the population we serve. So we had a little bit of discussion where staff shared with me that their experience has been uh, that patients who are homeless or in shelters struggle with their ability to maintain um, consistent participation in the program the way it is currently modeled. And the way the program is currently modeled involves a pretty uh, longitudinal series of interactions um, uh, that are consistent with a designation of a uh, severely mentally ill. Uh, however, that would still be true also for um, homeless patients as well. And for me and my knowledge, at least a little bit of knowledge that I've gleaned from um, uh, Ross's intelligence, uh, Trustee Peterson uh, too, is that uh, other IOP models are not as don't seem to have as long a tenured engagement uh, with the patients um, uh, as ours does, which is pretty substantial, I think north of a year uh, or, or at about a year. And that's a pretty long period of sustained engagement that uh, either doesn't work well from the patient from a compliance perspective or in some cases a desirable perspective uh, in terms of uh, that level of intensity. So uh, that is something that um, is incorporated in uh, option one and three that uh, I think you were hearing some feedback on, which is that um, uh, that doesn't just contribute to some of the potential disparities in who serve, uh, but also uh, um, um, impacts the access for people under this model. So option one and three, for uh, no, none of the options, uh, I want to be clear, for 10, and I think Paula spoke to this, uh, our current IOP model being status quo. Any option that includes IOP, which is option one and three, as we have presented it, requires substantive uh, um, uh, changes in the, the clinical model design uh, and who provides the services and how those services are provided. So what I think I want to be clear that you heard from the staff is they like option three, uh, but they like option three with a lot of the things that we are uh, suggesting would have to alter in the IOP model restored. And that's probably uh, um, not, well, as you say, it's inconsistent with what we've discussed with them, um, uh, but also probably not something that would likely address many of these challenges that we're outlining. So, Vecchio, so is that, is that fair to say at current position you favor option two? It is fair to say, and I shared that with the staff. Yes. Got it. Um, uh, just to, to clarify. Trustee Schroeder. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 please, please. Yeah, just, just to clarify in terms of, because it was sort of, <laughs> And I appreciate the uh, the input that we're getting from staff on this and the quick input, actually, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, but I just want to clarify that these three options are for discussion at this point. There isn't you haven't asked uh, the practitioners in this program to tell us which program to have in the future. There's a process here. No, we, 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 we asked, we, we didn't, the board hasn't asked. And, and I, I, um, I think uh, the input to the board is uh uh, um, you know, useful and I think helpful. What we've described to the staff as we participated in this conversation was uh, we wanted some initial feedback from them and then gave, gave them the opportunity as they have uh, done here to not just share it with you, they shared it with us too. We got it today as well mm -hmm. uh, um, to factor into our contemplations. What I shared with them was uh, my goal is that this is, uh, we've identified this as one of the uh, things in the budget uh, uh, consideration uh, moving towards the final budgets that you've seen on our two by two grid. And so our goal here is to take this feedback along with the other stakeholder engagement we have and all the other factors that are outlined here to 
add this and incorporate this into the budget proposal, the final budget proposal you will get later this year. So, so that's it'll come back to you uh, in that form, not in a separate uh, item, uh, but incorporated into a, bu a budget proposal. And I also just, I, I want to add and reassure everyone, you know, and obviously we're, we're not at the deciding point yet. Um, when a decision is made, there are obviously numerous clinical and operational considerations. So any transition, whether we're talking option one, two, or three, is going to take months of planning. Um, certainly a meet and confer process and involvement and engagement with our labor unions so that we follow the steps outlined for these types of changes in the MOU. And then, you know, most importantly, clinical considerations so that any impact that there would be to existing clients, we can work through with whoever the relevant stakeholders are and make sure that we have safe transition plans if they are needed um, for patients. So, you know, the, the, there's a long journey ahead of us, no matter which option is chosen. Del Vecchio, can you help me sort of choreograph sort of, if you will, the, the temporal timeline here, uh, given given the relation to our finance and that, that we have, uh, we, we have our finance chair, of course, here, is, is that we've chosen to give the amended budget by end of October. So, this, I, therefore, this must align with that, correct? That's correct. Okay, so so all stakeholders are aware the temporality of this is is probably September-ish. That is correct. Okay, so I, I just wanna make sure we're on the stage. Trustees, all, well, I think we're all clear on that one. That sounds right in terms of our, our pro process for the yeah. the permanent budget or whatever term we, we give that. And that, sorry, one more question, Delvecchio, and then uh, Trustee Shaquin, you. Delvecchio, do you do you have a vision? Does this require a board action, or is this? And and maybe General Counsel can do uh, can can advise on this. The board action would be the the budget uh, okay. where the budget. So, so as you said before, this would occur within the context of the budget, not as a separate item. Per that separate. is correct. Yes. So I I just want to stress I'm going to be a dog on a bone with. The, uh, the target population and our need to be part of this community and serving uh, people who are homeless or at risk of homeless, we're about ready to see another massive wave of homelessness, believe it or not. Uh, it can get worse. And to have a program in the middle of uh, this public hospital system that is mis-selecting out that population, let me tell you, my blood is boiling. Okay, that I will not, you know, I'm one member of the board, but that will not work from a quality perspective and our mission perspective. That will not work. And I'll say from a financial perspective, so I'm going to give some very tight bumper rails here. When I look at the uh, staff has done a terrific job of reporting out monthly on what we call patient revenue enhancement strategies that came out of last year's budget process. And we, the, the committee asked for that, the finance committee asked for that because uh, some of us worried that we wouldn't perform as well as we uh, had all hoped, that there may have been some aspiration over um, reality. I'm, and I'm, I think we're aligned with staff on that. It's not, uh, it's not a critique of staff's uh, management of that. Those reports have been really illuminating. I'm looking at last month's report or this month's report. And, you know, we're way off track on a lot of those. So I would say with this thing in terms of from the financial perspective, it 
you know, um, I think it's a program that's going to need to be real in terms of its financial. Um, we're, we don't have any room left for let's experiment and see if we can get there. It has to be uh, financially stable moving forward. It'll probably be on something I'm going to recommend the committee uh, consider uh, creating a watch list of programs that have had trouble performing financially. And it would probably go on to that even if it was reconstituted. So I just set those as two bumpers. There's a quality question about are we serving those who are in most need in our county and who are causing great costs within our system that's the quality question, one of them. I understand there are many quality questions, but that's one that I'm really focused on. And then financially, are we being aspirational when we get a budget proposal, or is it uh, very practical and reasonable to expect that we're going to re- reach the financial uh, perform within budget? All, all very appropriate comments. Trustee Hernandez. But could we go back to option two, please, on the slide? Um, so um, two things I'm really concerned about. I, I just looked it up on my laptop that Alameda County has about 8,000 people that are homeless. Um, I'm going to give it my best guess that maybe 70% of those have some mental illness uh, that uh, is contributing to their homelessness. Um, And so, uh, you know, I'm looking at how many patients we're seeing through this program, uh, and and it's difficult to understand that we're not tapping into that. Of course, homelessness is not the only indicator uh, or or, uh, correlate to being mentally ill. Uh, But I do want to understand if we hand off this program, to Alameda Behavioral Health Services, um, what is their track record? What do they do? So, and, oh, sorry. And, and if I may, mm-hmm. I, I just want to understand how our program is different from what they do, um, because uh, for all the IOP staff that are on this call, uh, please don't misunderstand my comment. Um, we have a lot of really difficult choices to make in the months ahead. And, and there are enormous uh, challenges facing every essential hospital in this country. And what I'm concerned about as we look at the landscape of what we have to do, we have to be very careful to look at what all the options are and what ultimately will serve the most number of patients that have this need. So, you know, I I don't want this to sound cold and crass, but I'm looking at how many people we're serving through this program and what I think the incredible numbers are out there, which are growing as a consequence of COVID-19. And and I just just have to say, I, I hope Alameda County Board of Supervisors are here and present at this meeting because if you're wondering what the trustees are trying to figure out how to deal with, um, our financial picture is very closely tied to the financial support that we get from you. 
And this is one of those programs that, frankly, we have to honestly ask ourselves, how, how do we do this, knowing what the numbers are and knowing what the services are that we can provide? Yeah, if I'm, thank you, uh, Trustee Hernandez. Um, I just I give you the closing comment on this, Delvecchio, the floor is yours, sir. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, uh, so the, the IOP uh, model is not a model that exists within the county. Uh, they have a, um, a different uh, model to serve the SMI uh, population and the full service partnership uh, of which our, our patients are eligible to pis uh, or, uh, participate in as well. Um, if we were to go with an option that pretend no longer having an IOP, uh, our goal would be to either A, um, um, contemplate and, and, and actually uh, create a model like option two that has a range of services that would be attractive to this population as well so we could actually keep them and serve them in this uh, model but if there were those of those patients who are medi medi and who wanted to continue with an iop model uh, our plan would be to partner with the clinicians to transition their care to an IO, a, a different iop model that's currently in existence elsewhere in the county there are other providers who provide this uh, type of service uh, for that population. Uh, so we would we, we would endeavor to do that and or obviously the county's other uh, providers in the full service partnership would be available to that population as well. So nothing about even option two, which would pretend for us no longer having IOP is designed to create a vacuum for the um, small, small uh, but, but important cohort of patients who we are currently serving. We'll just be looking at different ways of to providing the service in-house or supporting uh, them getting a different type of care uh, uh, somewhere else where their uh, coverage allows them to do that. Thank you for that. Um, we're coming to time on this one. Again, I want to rest assured for all parties, all stakeholders involved, we will continue this dialogue next time. I will uh, in advance hear Mark time because I expect public comment and I appreciate that there is public comment on this. Maria, we'll welcome you back next time and we'll space out maybe another 25 minutes. I'll, I'll put all other ad hoc uh, presentations because it's the primary concern to, to, to this set of our patients in our organization. Thank that you, acceptable. Trustee Bouquet, and um, the other trustees as well for your comments. You know, we definitely heard that we more data would be helpful, especially around demographics um, and equity and some of our more vulnerable patient populations. So we will work to collect that data and be prepared to present it next time. I anticipate that there will be a lot of meetings between uh, uh, all the stakeholders uh, between now and, uh, and our next session. So we have something. So appreciate that. With that, uh, we will we will close out item uh, E. Apologies, I'm going to make a little bit of an audible here, uh, and I'm actually going to move item H up on the agenda because it's actually an action item, and there's a potential for dialogue on this. Item H is the True North Metric Dashboard Review. H1 is the month monthly update. It is a written report. It is in there for us. But more importantly, uh, why I wanted to space this out, remember that every at the top of every fiscal year or towards the end of it, we need to approve the True North metric uh, dashboard items. Historically, we've had um, uh, uh, a couple years ago, we had 13 items. At last year, we had 12 items. I'm going to let our chief quali quality officer and maybe Annette Johnson, uh, I don't know, Tanberry, you help guide us through, this dialogue on the proposed True North metric da dashboard items. And remember, trustees, this is an actionable item. We need to, uh, we're going to have to have a vote on this because we need to put it up. We need to be, create our team. 
Uh, Dr. Hussein, the floor is yours. Thank you, Trustee Bouquet. Um, you can do it in about 15 uh, and then we can talk. Yes, very good. Um, hopefully the presentation will be shorter um, because of the legacy that um, this committee has set in place when we went through this process in a very systematic way to come up with the fiscal 19 metrics. Um, remember that obviously we have a QPSC to have a whole host of conversations around needs, our operational areas, as well as patient safety, regulatory. So the True North metric in our, in our medical staff presentations and ad hoc presentations. So the True North metric dashboard is not intended to try to comprehensively cover every aspect of quality safety or experience, but it is intended to capture what would be identified um, in national best practice as the core areas that every organization should follow. Um, and hence, um, our strategy for the True North metric since fiscal 19 has really been to survey what is best practice um, from uh, publicly reported data um, and, and what aligns with our organization and then um, best practices so we can benchmark ourselves. So um, in this proposal for fiscal 21, we continue with those major themes. Um, and then secondly, um, as we are becoming more of a data-driven organization uh, with uh, the implementation of um, you know, EPIC, we want to um, leverage that technology in a way that operationally data can be given to leaders that continue to drive, uh, drive improvement. Um, and the third thing is um, uh, uh, a lot of these metrics you will see repeated because they'll provide us as an uh, our organization opportunity to really think about how do we make sure that we reliably sustain and continue to drive improvement. So with that said, um, let me uh, move to page two of this document. Um, um, there is one consideration that I think is important to share, which is obviously um, uh, we are in uh, COVID has um, has been uh, disruptive, um, potentially in a good way too, um, in that it is asking us to reconsider the way that we have historically delivered care, um, particularly you know in our ambulatory setting, re uh, reimagining what care delivery should look like. And so I do want to acknowledge um, that um, uh, the collaboration with our operational leaders, we have uh, paused to ask, um, is the metric uh, reflective of, of, of what we need to be measuring for a future vision for care delivery? So I just want to highlight for you that in the ambulatory space, I think that is going to be um, a more robust discussion. So um, uh, on page two, we begin, um, let me orient you to the way that this document is set up. Um, you know, we have our uh, our, our pillars of um, access, quality, and experience that align with SEEP. Um, and then what you'll see here um, right after the pillar is what the current True North metric is. And then you will see that uh, we have provided you historical data so you can see, um, and, and you will see for all these metrics, we have seen improvement, what the goal was for this year, and what we're suggesting the goal be for next year. So that's the setup of the document. Um, so uh, I'm going to come back to ambulatory. Let me hit the other access metrics and I'll come back for a dialogue about ambulatory. So uh, throughput is going to be um, an essential um, access metric uh, uh, for um, all organizations, including ours. Um, and so um, you can see one of the ways that we measure throughput is observed to expected length of stay. Um, you can see our progress over the last couple of years. Um, currently in fiscal 20, we are 1.11. That's 11% greater than predicted. 
um, are expected. Our goal for fiscal 20 was 1.10, which is to be 10% over ex, um, expected. Um, we didn't uh, hit the goal for fiscal 20. I'm suggesting we continue the goal um, uh, that we try to hit 1.10 uh, in fiscal 21. Um, with our access now to the Vizient um, uh, database, when we look at the 50th percentile of essential hospitals, we see that it is 1.10. Um, and so that's what I'm suggesting for fiscal 21 in terms of O to E ratio. Um, when we look at um, throughput time in the emergency room from the decision to admit to hitting an inpatient bed, historically due to our um, um, electronic data access, we've only been able to men uh, measure Highland. And you can see that there's been a dramatic improvement in Highland. Um, but now here in the bottom corner, you can see with access to um, uh, uh, an Epic, we have data uh, available for Almeida and San Leandro. So what we have done is here, if you'll follow this table here in fiscal 20 at Almeida, um, uh, the ED throughput time is one hour and five minutes. Um, and we are uh, suggesting because that's the 20th percentile uh, of top 20th percentile of performance, we try to maintain it because it's the first year that we're also measuring at Alameda Hospital. At Highland, we um, have come down from a historical legacy of like 13 hours down to five hours and 25 minutes. Our operational leaders want to continue to challenge the organization to hit four hours and uh, seven minutes. That would put us at the 90th percentile. And at San Leandro, they're um, uh, at one hour and 33 minutes. We're pushing the target to the 40th percentile. So that would be one hour and 30 minutes. So when we take the average of the three facilities, a weighted average, that is, that gets us to three hours and eight minutes for all the EDs. So remember, historically, we looked at Highland only. Now we're looking at all three facilities. And I tried to explain to you how we're doing the individual targets and the weighted average. Avoidable uh, yeah. days was a new metric added to our access pillar last year. Um, uh, again, this is the intersection of where we have opportunities to help with throughput. Uh, I ask if you're, uh, I ask everyone to mute if you're not presenting. Sorry, Tanvir. No problem. So um, you see that avoidable days when we first collected this in fiscal 19 was 682. We brought down that, brought that down to 409 days. Uh, despite our target being 614, we want to continue to drive that improvement from 409 to 368 for the next uh, fiscal year, which is a 10% reduction. Now, going back to ambulatory, um, uh, um, and I'm glad that Pallav is on the call today, um, uh, because obviously the uh, we're moving increasingly to telephonic visits in the ambulatory setting, you know, lead time in in-clinic visits is, is not really um, um, as meaningful. Um, and we don't expect that, expect that that would uh, change um, in the midst of COVID or even post-COVID. Post um, so, uh, Paula, do you want to comment on what your team is currently thinking about an appropriate access metric? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think obviously there's a host of different access metrics we've used over the years. Cycle time, TNA, no-show, um, they're all predicated upon, you know, largely having in-person office visits and not having a global pandemic going on that dramatically changes our clinical practice patterns. Um, so not only has telehealth disrupted all of these metrics, I think also 
um, as the public health orders come out asking us to shut down or revamp operations, there are factors outside of our control. So Dr. You know, Trustee Bouquet can talk about what happened to their TNAA when they had to shut down the endoscopy suite um, you know, for three months for factors outside of their control. And so I just think you know, having a metric that we cannot actually make measurable improvements on and drive progress on um, just isn't meaningful and, and misses the point of having a True North metric dashboard. So one of the ones that we thought would be really valuable for a lot of different reasons was actually well-child visits. Um, so as many of you know, for all children at different cadences, depending on the age of the child, um, we our pediatricians do well-child visits where they do a comprehensive assessment to ensure that the child is meeting his or her developmental milestones, provide vaccinations, and then provide support to the family. In current state, we are doing both in-person and virtual well visits for our children. Um, some, depending on the age, some are in-person, many of them are virtual. Um, and it's a good access metric. So for QIP, which is one of our pay for performance programs, we're actually tracking well child visits. So we already have robust data on this. And so I know it's a little bit unorthodox because it's not one of our usual cycle time, TNA, you know, no-show metrics, but we actually wanted to propose using well child visits for the TNM dashboard for a few reasons. One, it's something that even despite COVID is really important to do. You know, during this pandemic, vaccinating our children is probably more important than it ever was. In addition, with increasing, you know, stress in our families, um, families not having steady income streams, making sure that we are checking in with our children, screening for food insecurity, screening for abuse, domestic violence is doubly important as those stressors increase. And then I think, you know, our pediatric population is also a little bit of canary in the coal mine. So we saw during shelter in place, people were scared and parents were scared to bring in their children. They were scared to access care. Um, and so we're doing a lot to sort of you know, compensate for that. Our Hayward site is doing curbside vaccinations, so people feel comfortable coming to the clinic but can sit in their car and get vaccines and not enter the facility. So I think there's also a lot of innovation that we can do um, to really make sure that we understand what our patients need during this pandemic to feel safe bringing their kids in or getting virtual care. Um, so thought that it would actually meet a lot of those needs if we pick this metric. So Paula, uh, and, and this is you uh, and you and Tender at the same time, the document submitted suggested TNAA, is that correct? But you, uh, but yeah, you, I think the document got submitted before we had a chance to have robust dialogue. And so we would like to change our minds if that's okay. Which is, you know, you, you get to change your mind always. Yeah. So, um, so um, I, I just want to know, so, so we have clarity amongst us. So well child visits is what quality is proposing in, in concert with ambulatory. Okay, got it. All right, Tanvera, keep, keep on going. Okay, so that's access. Any other questions on the access metrics before I move into the quality pillar? Okay, um, uh, so let me go ahead and move into the quality pillar now. So these are again going to be familiar metrics to you. Um, the biggest change here um, is uh, historically we used to have Prime and QIP. They were two separate programs, but um, the Medicare, the Medi-Cal. Um, Supplemental fund programming structure is changing so that now the two programs are going to be combined into one. Not only are they going to be combined into one, um, they're going to go through a period of something called Q QIP 3.5 with the for the remainder of the calendar year, and then the programs are intending to move on to a calendar year. So beginning in 
January of uh, 2021, uh, we will begin a new performance period and that will be Q, uh, QIP 4.0. So I apologize that this looks a little strange, um, but um, so for quarter one and quarter two of the fiscal year, um, that is the remainder of the calendar year, we hope to hit a 90% of all the QIP metrics. Then on January 1st of uh, 2021, we'll begin uh, a new performance period, um, which is a calendar year. So that will be quarter three and quarter four of the fiscal year. And historically, when we've looked at our performance, we found that um, usually halfway through a performance period, we're tracking at 40%. And to date, we've been very you know, successful in hitting our 90% um, our 90 target. So what I'm suggesting is uh, we hit 90% of the uh, Q, QIP 3.5 metrics and then for um, the period of January 1st, 2021 to the uh, June 30th, we try to hit um, to what our middle ground, uh, uh, what we have historically hit in that six months. So that would be 40%. That would keep us on track to hit 90th percentile by the end of the performance period. Um, for uh, all costs, 30 day readmission, we're suggesting a 5% reduction from where we currently are in our performance. So that would be 12.54 where we're currently at to 11.91. Um, recall that when we look at the national Medicare data, uh, that uh, 50th percentile is 15%. Uh, so this is better than that. Um, the only notable difference is uh, that um, the Medicare data is able to look at readmissions at all facilities, whereas our data here is only able to look at readmissions within our own system. So I recognize there's some divergence there. Um, however, uh, uh, it, it, it's still below the national median uh, and, and we're suggesting a 5% reduction. For hospital acquired infection index, um, this is a composite of five different uh, hospital acquired infections, that's uh, surgical site infections, um, um, uh, MRSA bloodstream infections, uh, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, central line-associated bloodstream infections, um, and uh, C. diff. Uh, now, um, you can see how we have dramatically reduced our rate uh, from 6.98 to 3.22, where our target was 6.29 this year. What I am recommending is a continued reduction in the rate of infection, but to switch our methodology to something called a standardized incidence ratio, and the reason I'm asking for us to do that is one, uh, we have always wanted to do this, but did not have the access to the data to be able to do this. What this basically looks like rate is the concept of how many do you, how many infections do you have over a total number of patient days? Sir says, what is the uh, sort of like O to E, what is the expected amount of infections you would have based on several features and what was, what did you achieve? So right now, if we look at our uh, observed to expected ratio, for lack of a better word of infections, is 0.71. Okay, so we are still 30, 29% uh, less than one would expect. I'm suggesting we reduce it even further to 0.64. So continued improvement, but change in methodology. That would uh, help us, and, and we're able to do this now because of our access to data. For hospital acquire harm, um, index, Actually, yeah. uh, uh, this is a, yes. Uh, uh, in the conversion to SIR, um, uh, which I fully support, we will never be able to go back and retrospectively calculate our SIRs, right? Because that data was not available in those other years. 
because I oh sorry yeah yes I apologize we do we 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 do have that data it's just that um, so for example when we look at fiscal 19 yeah here I'm highlighting it it was 26 uh, percent greater yeah than um, and and then we reduced it to 0.71 the reason we were unable to present it on our dashboard is we did not have the month-to-month -month predictive value okay so in other words it used to come out quarterly. It used to come out quarterly. So I couldn't give you a month-to-month, -month, sir. Now that data is available monthly, so I can give you a month-to-month, -month, sir. Right. For the dashboard. And why I asked about retrospective, I want us to be able to say in five years, well, I, I want to see a great downtrending curve. Uh, and so that's, you know, I know that's a little bit of a build, but just, just contextualizing data over yeah. time. Okay. Completely agree with you. So we're already seeing that from 1.26 down to 0.71, and I absolutely want it to go even uh, further below to 0.64. Got it. Hey, we're um, on a time check, so pick up the pace a little bit if you don't mind. Okay, yes. Hospital acquired harm index, 10% uh, reduction. Oh, I'm sorry. This should not say 10% reduction avoidable days. It should be say 10% reduction harm. My right. apologies. No. So that would bring us from 1.53 to 1.38. So safety alert was a new addition. You can see uh, that historically it was, uh, this is um, when we, you, uh, you guys are very familiar with this after the patient safety reports, we rate the events from A to I. E is where um, 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 uh, uh, an error reaches the patient and causes temporary harm. So that used to be, we used to have 6.1% of our events were E or greater. We were able to bring it down to 3.9 in fiscal 19. In fiscal uh, 20, we have it down to 2.63. Now you will see we are recommending the median point between 2.63 and 3.90 for fiscal 21. The reason for that is we do suspect that part of this dramatic decrease to 2.63 is that we were not offering some of our highest risk services, i.e. in the operative space and lots of procedures. So. Um, Please do not get me wrong. As an organization, we will strive to minimize harm um, to the greatest extent possible. But since this is the first year we have this metric, we know these high-risk procedures were not conducted. We selected the midpoint, um, but we will, of course, try to, try to target less than that. So that's what I have for quality. Okay. Okay. For experience, um, as you can see, um, uh, we're at 69.9. This is a standard methodology we, we use for press gaining, which asks, for those in the 60th in the decile, uh, the 60th percentile, what is the average improvement? And um, what they can do is they stratify for the top 30% of improvers in this percentile. What is that? So that's the methodology we use to hit 70.8, and we've used that year to year. Now CG caps is another area where we're having change because. This survey was uh, largely um, surveying around in-clinic visits. We've now moved, needed to move to uh, uh, something called a telemed survey. So there's um, two things here. One is um, there's not benchmarking data on rate the provider on the telemed survey. So one option is we need to wait for three months to establish a baseline, and that would be a capacity analysis. Um, and then figure out is recalibrate the benchmark. Um, the other option is, um, and I'll let uh, Dr. Uh, Babaria speak to this, whether or not, again, with the complete uh, uh, care transformation going on, whether an alternative metric is superior. 
Yeah, and just one comment on that, you know, partly why we chose rate the provider nine or 10 is this is the metric that we are tracking for our prime program. And, you know, we know how confusing it is if we have multiple different variations of a single metric. So we wanted to have consistency. Since the prime program is sunsetting, it is unlikely that this metric is going to carry over into QIP. And we have a little bit of flexibility to pick what we think is most meaningful. Many systems use recommend the practice as the CG caps metric because it is more global and encompasses not just the provider experience, but also patient experience with office staff, with phone access, you know, sort of the entirety of their outpatient clinic experience in that clinic. So, you know, I think it would be worthwhile to explore that, but we need to follow up and see if we will still run into the same problems with telehealth benchmarking, since that is new to so many systems. But Dr. Barbario, we need to make a vote today. So what is your recommendation that, that we substitute out, recommend the practice for the- Yes, that is my recommendation. Is that for the for the CG caps, right? CG caps, correct. But, keep, but keeping the H caps. Oh yes, H caps rate the hospital we will keep. And then for CG caps, instead of rate the provider, uh, we'll switch to rate the practice. And, um, and uh, we will be able to get you data and benchmarking for that. Okay. The final, uh, oh, sorry. No, no, keep, keep on going. We got to take it to the house. Okay. The, yes. The final element, uh, which um, is at the very top here, is um, I know uh, uh, central on my mind and my team's mind and on this um, committee's mind is how do we begin to look at the data um, uh, by uh, our vulnerable population? And so um, there's one of two proposals um, that we can pursue. Um, uh, or both proposals, depending on the appetite for this uh, committee, is one. Um, my team and I are committed uh, to uh, provide presenting stratified data by race, race, ethnicity, and language by pillar over the course of the year. So you have some visibility into, for example, where do we see um, disparities in the access metrics by race, ethnicity, and, and language. The next uh, quarter, we could do that by quality in the next quarter, we could do that by experience. So we are committed to doing that. Um, the main thing I want to check with you on is that that is aligned with uh, the work that Hedy is doing. I don't uh, want to create sort of um, uh, parallel pathways that don't come together. Uh, so, so we're happy to do that uh, quarterly stratification so long as it aligns with the um, sort of priorities uh, of Hedy. Canvitter, is that data you said that you just remarked on obtainable? I don't believe that it will be obtainable for every single metric, um, but uh, for many of them, yes. And we will need at least the first quarter to um, for, uh, to get some certainty around the data validity around race, ethnicity, and language, which is why I'm proposing um, this quarterly incremental work. Uh, we want to share data that we feel confident in. Trustee Hernandez, do you have a comment? I just simply was raising my hand saying, yes, please do this. Um, and it is very aligned with what uh, is going to come out of the HETI committee's um, recommendations. So thank you so much, Tanvir. Yeah, thank you so much. And th and that that allows me to take away the comment that I had for you. Tanvir, you know, I'm always going to compliment you. But my, one of my comments was, I didn't see an equity item on the dashboard. So. So is it going to be perfect? No, but we're, 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 we're playing the long play here, right? This is incrementalism. Mm -hmm. Getting something on the dashboard is landmark. Right. Uh, so so let's, I, I, I sort of agree with that. 
Trustee Shaquin, any comments? It, uh, yeah, I, I, that was exactly my thought that uh, let's get it going and then that from there we can evaluate and see if it's me or me. So this is great. Dr. I, I Hussein. All the thinking. I'm going to, to, to close out, I'm going to try to summarize what I've heard and then you can con confirm and then I'm going to make a motion to approve. So uh, last year's TNM dashboard had uh, 12 items. This revised dashboard in, uh, asserts removing four of those existing items, removing ambulatory arrival to departure, uh, primary, removing ambulatory arrival to departure specialty, removing prime metrics and removing CG caps. It proposes adding um, uh, four new ones, uh, three new ones, safety alerts, well child visits, and this quarterly diversity work. That will give us a summary of 12 items proposed for the 2020-21 dashboard, and I'll name them. Well child visits, acute OTE, Median time decision admit to bed, avoidable days, QIP metrics, all cause 30 day readmits, hospital acquired infections index, hospital acquired harms per 1000, safety alerts, HCAP score, recommend the practice score, and this diversity qu quarterly work, which I don't have a good title for it, I'll just call it the diversity work. Does that accurately summarize? It does. Okay. Uh, may I entertain a motion from the trustees to approve these recommended quality relevant 12 TNM uh, dashboard items? So moved. Seconded. All in favor? Aye. Uh, opposed? I, uh, Trustee Hernandez. Just a question. So yes. I, I'm not uh, contesting the vote or anything. Um, is is it possible that at some point uh, we need to look at telemedicine access? Um, and I know we talked about the child care, wheelchair, uh, wheelchair visits, but I'm thinking about just how much is being moved to tel telecare. Um, is there anything else we should look at there? And we can take that up next time. I'm just asking this question because I think COVID-19 will be with us for maybe another year of uh, challenge in getting people to come to the hospital. I think people are really afraid. Uh, they'll come when they're desperate, but for regular ongoing care, um, is there any reason why we wouldn't just look at um, the utilization of telemedicine appointments? I think that's an important discussion. Dr. Barbaria is set to give the SBU for ambulatory next month. Okay. Dr. Maria, may I may I ask you to include that in that 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 item for for contemplation at the at your August presentation? Absolutely, and just um, one editorial comment. You know, I think obviously striving to set a target and improving percentages of telehealth is challenging because depending yeah. on what's happening with the pandemic, it may shift, but we are working so that as you get the monthly financial stats reports, we break out and clearly give people a sense of by service line, what percentage is telehealth, what's that in absolute number as well as percentage. So I think that data, we're working on getting it to all of you and will be available and illuminating as we go month to month. It and Dr. Barbaria, for that, I will absolutely want to know the, the um, stratification of that data uh, uh, being available because 
Um, I do think that the vulnerable populations uh, will have a different experience with telemedicine, and I think we need to be prepared to understand what that looks like. Right. Absolutely. And we, you will hear a lot more next month when I present, but we just got a CHCF Foundation grant, actually, Yay. to specifically look at how we address telemedicine with our vulnerable population and are especially thinking through sort of tech navigator programs yeah. that we can use to support yeah. our patients with navigating. Um, so more to come. Uh, Jenny Cohen should be co-presenting with me next month. Thanks. Um, Dr. Hussein, you know I'm slow sometimes. Can you re-articulate what this uh, uh, equity da uh, TNM dashboard item is on the quarterly basis, or say that for me one more time for my own notes. Absolutely. So the intention is um, by pillar, um, uh, quarterly by pillar, um, or so, sorry, let me rephrase. On a quarterly basis, um, um, we will present stratified data and we will rotate by quarter through the different pillars. Um, we will need one quarter to establish the methodology to make sure we um, responsibly um, are looking at race, ethnicity, and language and the definitions thereof. So in quarter two, I anticipate we'll look at the access metrics and have it stratified for you wherever we can do that. In quarter three, we'll look at the quality metrics and stratify that for you where we can do it for those specific metrics where it's available. And then quarter four will be experience. I hope that that will be um, uh, an exploration to identify where we do have gaps that then subsequently can inform uh, through a data-driven way where how we can develop equity metrics moving forward. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for that item. Item H, just for the record, we the, the trustees approved these 12 new uh, TNM dashboard items. Okay. With that, uh, I'm going to apologize to other scheduled reporters. We're going to move on to item F, which is the acute SBU report. Um, uh, a couple names, Jan I think Janet, uh, hi Janet, Janet was originally on there, but also she has her three VPs, Teresa Cooper, uh, of course, our VP of care services at Highland, uh, Glorinda Pastorius, if Glorinda's here, we'd love to meet her, and, the, and then third, Ronica. Janet, apologies, we, uh, if we can scoot through this one in about five or ten, we should presume that all the trustees have read their packet and then I'll have a question for each of, you know, my question for each of the VPs. Is that acceptable, Janet? That's that's perfect. And so I, I have answers to your questions. And so um, I don't think I'll go through the executive summary. I think uh, Dr. Hussein really went through it and it's in the packet. But I did want to highlight some uh, really wonderful work that's been done. I want to thank the three VPs for the contribution and then also Dr. Tornabene, my partner in crime as a dyad partner. And so, um, you know, a, a few of the bright spots, we this pandemic has actually brought a lot of good things to the to the surface that we don't always think about. And so uh, I'm exceptionally proud of Alameda Health for uh, two things that happened really. The San Quentin incident where they were in a, a dire straits and they asked for our help and there was never a question about uh, whether we would help, it was about how could we best help them, and we have actually seen uh, patients at all three hospitals, and so they are eternally grateful. They were uh, really frustrated, beat down, exhausted, didn't know where to turn, and, and we opened up an entire third floor at uh, San Leandro and took patients. Uh, they spilled over into Alameda, and then San Leandro, or, uh, Highland has taken patients as well. So we are down to three patients in the system. 
uh, lots of good outcomes where they went back um, to San Quentin. And so um, really thankful that we were able to, to reach out and help for them. And really just the response from our staff and providers was exceptional. The other uh, work that we got ourselves involved in uh, was with the county um, in a number of areas. And so we're helping uh, Alameda County with uh, something called Operation Comfort, which are all the hotels that were stood up to take the homeless population uh, I toured the Radisson uh, last Thursday. They've got over 500 people that they will be able to accommodate. Um, today, I sent out a notice asking nursing staff if they wanted to work on a day off or um, you know, if they worked uh, part-time or sand position, if they were willing to, to give time. Um, it hasn't gone out officially, but by word of mouth, in about two hours, we had eight people that said, pick me, pick me, I really want to be there. And so I expect that once the formal communication goes out, we will have a lot more people and we will be able to uh, support the community that way. So again, very proud of our staff. I think it will give them a break from uh, the hospital and give them a little bit of a, a different flavor in the community and that ability to have that, that feel good give back. Um, uh, I'll let Felicia talk to this, but there's a lot of community testing uh, that has been uh, work. Uh, that's been done and then Felicia and I were uh, volunteered this work to be uh, on the county surge plan and I want to thank Dr. Hussein for that. That has <laughs> evolved into uh, actually some pretty good work. Um, you know I was very uh, pleased that when we got onto that call uh, I was proud of how far ahead Alameda Health was. When we started our surge plan back in March we were really starting from square one. Um, getting on the call with the county it was so gratifying uh, to see how far we had evolved as a health system. And we were able to tell them, this is how we're doing things and give them advice. And so we've been invited to another piece of the surge plan uh, that, that we will help drive the work that's in Alameda and keep that, that work local and then have Alameda Health uh, System positioned uh, as the provider of choice. Um, and then the last thing, um, I talked about the surge plan. Uh, we have a uh, permanent OR director that came on board last week. Her name is Myrna Chang for Highland. Uh, we have a permanent ED director who will come on board next week for us. Her name is Michelle Hepburn. So we're super excited about that. Um, we started a new grad program in all three hospitals. And so we, um, and hold, hold your seats, this will blow you away. We uh, advertised for new grads for about a week and a half. We had 1,900 applicants wow. for 14 positions. And so our recruitment department did a fantastic job. They whittled it down to 35. We held these speed dating type of interview processes over three days, got it down to uh, 14 candidates that we selected. Um, they were super excited. And so we'll start that one mid-August and then we hope to start another one in the fall really to fill some of our vacancies, but to bring in some uh, young, excited, exceptionally talented individuals to change the culture and really start moving us in a direction we want to go. So um, that uh, it was such a great process. And these uh, candidates came with um, you know double master's programs, lots of volunteering work that they've done. I told them you know, as I interviewed them, I reflected back to 32 years ago when I was a new grad and they they were way, way more evolved than I was. And so um, just a really different set of people. We had to turn away a lot of really good candidates, but we interviewed and got some exceptional candidates. So um, I think that's all I have. Uh, we talked about your questions, uh, Dr. Biquette, and so we are ready with answers. Dr. Tornabene and I kicked this around yesterday. And so we uh, wanted to say that we didn't have issues um, that concerned us or things that kept us awake at night. We had top priorities. And so those top priorities are 
uh, continuous readiness, not just for joint commission, but as a, a way that we do business every day to keep our patients safe and our staff safe. Uh, viability and responsiveness in the pandemic as it starts to evolve and our focus is not necessarily on ICU patients, but now more on uh, potentially tele and, and med surge patients. How do we pivot with everything that's changing? Um, and then really the productivity as uh, Felicia and I as a dyad partner and how that spills down with the VPs to keep everybody current and focused on what's going on. So um, that was pretty quick, but I'm ready to entertain any questions or my team is ready if anybody has any questions or comments. Yeah, just, to, just to read, thank you for that uh, and for being efficient for us. So your three top uh, priorities were number one, readiness, number two, viability of what we've done, and three, productivity. Is that it? As, as dyads. And so with the physician uh, nursing dyads all the way down through the system to keep that viable and productive. Ah, got it. Oh, okay. As dyads. Trustees, any questions for Ms. McInnes? You're wow. very kind. This was my first time, so thank you. You're very kind. I, 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 it shouldn't be a surprise for anybody, but thank you for pre-preparing. So with, with that, we will close um, item F. We'll go to item G, just uh, begging everyone's indulgence. Uh, I, I always want to give the quality team their time because of all the work they do. We're going to go about plus five to ten minutes. Let's call it ten minutes, and and I and I want to give uh, uh, Nilda and Darshan some space because I know they they work their butts off. Um, so with that, we will go to item G. Um, let's open up to item G and give you guys a little bit of space on his Darshan. Darshan, you're on mute. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bouquet. Um, of course. I think um, I'm just going to, uh, I'm, we had a, I'm not going to highlight too many details because this is included in the packet. Yep. Um, but again, um, we have shown significant improvement in our harm rate, and I'm really glad that that's going to be on our dashboard. Um, so we are anticipating putting in um, uh, additional patient safety activities that will continue to promote a culture of proactive work so we can mitigate risks before they happen. And uh, because we have seen um, less uh, sentinel events, and um, I do want to share that we've also had, we had zero eye events. Uh, yeah. Year 20, which was a which was a huge huge accomplishment for the organization and um, tremendous amount of learnings and growing and being able to reflect on our historical data and um, look at where areas we're still continuing to sustain and where we drift and we have to of course correct so um, I am really looking forward to the next year and how we're going to solidify some of those processes and continue to um, grow as an organization. And again, there's uh, a lot of activities I would like to um, implement in the upcoming fiscal year, including um, quality and patient safety innovation awards and really promote uh, engagement from the unit level and get frontline staff involved to really showcase some of the great work that they're doing to get the results that, that we're seeing right now. So um, really want to leverage what we have and then um, use it as a springboard to, to move forward. Thank you. 
Darshan, thank you so much. Uh, a, a couple of comments that uh, I love that. Uh, thank you for the request and accommodating me. The, the, the buy harm score trend line, that's my favorite graph that you have. So we can actually see where I's have happened, where P's have happened. So thank you for making that request a, a couple months ago. And then, then my other thing, it's, it's my favorite true north, true north metric dashboard item. The new one is the safety alerts uh, because it, it gets to the core of, of what we're trying to do here. It's the first letter in, in steep, right? So safety. So I really, really appreciate that. So question to you, uh, number one, tell us about one success you've had recently and then give us your rank list of top uh, concerns or opportunities as Janet. Janet, um, uh, you know, one one big success that feels really rewarding is, um, you know, we were caught off guard, little surprised when Joint Commission came, but we, you know, we were resilient, we're very resilient, and we didn't focus on the negative and we used it as an opportunity to again propel forward. And once the team um, started doing survey readiness rounds, the engagement, the uh, sense of pride and ownership was incredible. Uh, what we saw on the front line um, was just, it, it, was, it was just really gratifying. And I think when we do it with the, the right spirit of, you know, this is our home, these are our patients, and we're here to serve and protect and, and give it our all, um, you see tremendous amount of energy and positive outcomes. Um, so recent recent wins, it's it's uh, yeah. Sometimes things are difficult to swallow when we're not doing well, but in hindsight, we grow tremendously as an organization. Right. We have the right attitude uh, to embrace it. Give me a rank list of your top concerns in order, please. Uh, still you a lot of work. <laughs> still a lot of work to do around the just culture. I so really like. You're calling number one just culture? Just culture. Really want to look at uh, 2021, focusing on how to implement just culture, um, uh, you know, because it also uh, impacts organizational accountability and individual accountability. Number two. I uh, want to really focus on culture of safety. We've done a survey for three years. We couldn't do it this year, but there is a wealth of learnings from that that we still need to um exercise on and and continue to build that that sense of accountability ownership and pride at the unit level and then i think thirdly um i'm really looking at ways to not only incorporate in my own day-to-day -day work but seeing how we can incorporate it system-wide is looking at high reliable highly reliable organizations and lean lean principles I think a lot of times we work we work harder than we need to, and we need to start to work smarter and utilize technology to our benefit. And there's a lot of ways we can do that, um, that, that sometimes we feel it's uh, monumental and difficult to, to do. Yeah, change is hard, but I think there's a lot of great benefit on the other side. So Darshan, I thank you for that. I heard number one issue for you was just culture. Number two was the culture of safety. Number three was the reliability of uh, of the processes. Right. Do you feel do you feel resourced to address these concerns? With all of you, yes. I need every single one of the leaders on this this call to support me 
and um, and and lead this effort because um, I know I, I I just feel it in my heart that the um, the effort will be monumental for our patients, our organization survival, and and we can lead. Um, so uh, I'm resourceful with all of you okay. helping me. Darshan, thank you for your report. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Nilda. Good afternoon, Dr. Burkett. How are you? Nilda, apologies coming last. Um, you, you had a very nice report in the packet, and uh, you all, uh, uh, it's always very well, well, well written. Uh, as, as we're coming to time, I'm going to keep it simple for you, if you don't mind. Do Tell us mind. about one success you've recently had, and then give us your rank list of top concerns, and then I'm going to have a big last question for you. Sure. I would say that one big success that we've had is staff actually um, engaging us proactively around um, accreditation standards and regulatory compliance. Um, it would be typically before when we first started going around and rounding and working on plans of correction, it was a lot of at the elbow, at the table, tears, tantrums, tiaras, whatever you want to call it. It was a lot of, of pulling uh, people along and understanding that concept of that this is our standard work. This is what we need to do every day. We don't just do this when Joint Commission shows up. Um, and so now I would say that we have had a um, tremendous amount of um, outreach from educators, leaders, frontline staff, uh, physicians, everyone up and above, executives, everyone. And it is really, I would say that's a success for myself and my team. Great. All right. Rank list your top concerns. Okay. Um, my top concerns would see that I still think we have some opportunity around consistency of staff education and competency, um, assuring some standard work there. And then I think um, I'm challenged with how do I uh, reach out and adequately support the rotating staff, the professional trainees, the students. I think that would be my third. That would be your second one? That would be my third. Competency would be first, training, education would be second. Uh, got it, got it. Yeah. And then third is? Rotators. Rotate. Yes. Uh, keep yeah, yes. Okay. Okay. students. Okay. Do you feel resourced to address these? Um, I I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I possibly understand some of the governance involved in some of the uh, the the dyad leadership. So I'm hoping though, because we have a dyad governance model that seems to be working and rolling out very well, um, as Janet alluded to. That I think um, I think we I think we can. I've just got to figure it out. Okay, not sure. Not sure is an appropriate answer. That's okay. <laughs> okay, uh, here's the here's the big one for you. Last time I asked you if we were ready for our TGIC survey, and mm -hmm. you and I want to I want to applaud you. You said no, so that that makes me happy on multiple reasons. It means you feel safe enough uh, with your relationship with your boss to 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 truth speak your truth. So. You said no. Uh, so I'm gonna ask you that question again. Are we ready for them now? I would say that with the what the data has shown and with all the work done to date, that we are well positioned to have a successful resurvey. However, again, are we ready for them now? <laughs> I'd say that we are we are well positioned to have a successful survey. Yes. Okay. I would say yes. Okay. I do feel that the challenge that we have is that as more time passes before resurvey, uh, concerns raise about you know erosion and deviation from practices. 
But I, so I think it's very important that we continue that vigilance to hardwire those good practices and continue that standard work. Okay. So I'm, I'm, yes, I'm optimistic and I'm, I am optimistic that we'll figure out that, what to do with that passage of time and to keep our work standard uh, vigilance. Thank you. Um, for, thank you for your report for both of you. Okay. We, you, you guys are both appreciated. That, closes, that closes out item G. We've already done item H. Item I is the planning calendar. Reminding, reminder to all that the full board is dark in August, just as a reminder, but QPC is not. Uh, the ambulatory SBU is scheduled for August. Uh, uh, Dr. Babaria knows it's on our task list to address that specific question about telehealth, how do we measure it and all that kind of stuff. Of course, we're gonna keep the IOP on the radar and 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 give it the time it needs uh, and, and the breadth it needs to discuss. Um, the the current iteration of the calendar says uh, August was going to be a patient affairs landscape, but I I think we need to focus on the IOP right now, getting that one across the finish line. So I'll punt patient affairs down the road a little bit, and I need to actually make a new calendar for the new for the new fiscal. So that's the planning calendar for. Uh, for uh, next month, item that closes item I. Item J, legal counsel. Thank you, Trustee Bouquet. This is Alexander from the Office of the General Alexander. Counsel. Good afternoon. I'll go ahead and do the closed session report. Uh, so the QPSC committee met in closed session and consider and approve as presented and amended the credential and reports of the two medical staffs. The committee took no further action. Thank you, Alexander. With that, we close out item J. That closes out all the items plus 10 minutes. My apologies. I appreciate it. When that closes uh, QPSC for July.